Welcome to the Grattan Institute podcast channel. This is a recording of one of Grattan's public events. I'd like to acknowledge the traditional owners of the land, the uh, Wurundjeri people of the Kulin Nation, and pay my respects to elders past and present, and also emerging elders of the nation. I'd also like to remind us that uh, Aboriginal people have a life expectancy of 10 years shorter than non-Indigenous Australians, and that when we hear those acknowledgements of country, we should remember that they're not acknowledgements of rote, but acknowledgements to remind us of the continuing dispossession uh, of, uh, and, the, and the problems associated with that. So uh, one of the foci of the Grattan Health Program is quality of care. And uh, we've done one report which looked at one aspect of that, which is what I'll talk about tonight. And we've got a couple of other reports underway. And so what Christine will be talking about is some of the work that we're doing right now uh, to lead to these reports, which we hope to release later this year. And so you're a test run, so thank you very much for being unwitting volunteers and guinea pigs, but we'd really appreciate later to hear your reflections on what we have to say and, and any comments uh, that would, would be helpful for us as we uh, keep on working on the reports. So my, my uh, presentation will be on a report we issued last year on, on so-called questionable care. And what, what we're interested in this is this, this problem that there's been so much published about this and so little action. And one of the themes of our forthcoming reports will be this is issue of actionable data. And I, I'll start with this presentation. This is work done by a guy called Jeff Richardson who was Professor of Health Economics at Monash University. And about 20 years ago, he published this, uh, this graph, which shows the admission rate for various operations uh, across Victoria. And you can see, and these are local government areas, you can see huge variations in uh, admission rates. And this issue of variability is a really common and high profile one. Just a month or so ago, the Australian Commission on Safety and Quality in Healthcare issued yet another report called the Atlas of Variation, which did exactly this, in a, in a somewhat prettier form, but exactly this, publishing information about variation. And so we should be celebrating the 20th birthday of this uh, publication, and also, of course, the 20th birthday of nothing happening as a result of that publication. Now, this reminds me of the very famous Sherlock Holmes story, The Dog in the Nighttime. And we have uh, the police inspector saying, is there any other point to which you would wish to draw my attention? And Sherlock Holmes says, to the curious incident of the dog in the nighttime, Gregory, the dog did nothing in the nighttime. That was the curious incident. So what we have to explain is why something didn't happen. So, uh, so what, uh, why I put that up is Bob Evans, who is a very famous Canadian health economist, probably the most famous Canadian health economist, published a, 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 an article uh, in 1990 where he, he says, amongst other things, knowing is not the same as doing. The most striking fact about the large and extensively documented variations in pattern of medical practice throughout the developed world is the minimal impact of this information has had on health policy. 
And then they've said, these differences, moreover, do not appear to be explicable in terms of the needs or characteristics of the population served. At least such explanations have not been found. And so he's saying the same thing. And he then goes on to say, similar observations emerge in every country studied, despite the substantial differences in their health systems. The research findings are really quite remarkable in their scale and consistency, yet nowhere has there been any significant adaptation in regulation or reimbursement. So, yeah. Um, and he says, back in 1990, but now it is 20 years since the first studies in the English-speaking world began to focus on this phenomenon, quoting Pearson in 68. So now we've got the 50th birthday of this phenomenon being published and the 50th birthday, of course, of not have anything happening about it. So in, in that tradition, we decide to do exactly the same thing. So we, we of course, uh, decide to waste our time doing a graph which shows exactly the same thing, huge variation. This time, the dots here are what are called Medicare local areas, the areas of 61 of those across the country. Huge variation in tonsillectomy rates, for example, from one that had uh, a rate which was more than double the, uh, the national average to one which was three quarters, uh, sorry, 75% below the national average. So huge variations we're observing. Now, the puzzle is, well, it's probably not a puzzle, but one, one of the issues is why doesn't anything happen? Well, one of the problems is we've got no idea whether this is good or that is good. And so we've got, we can array ourselves, but high could be bad and low could be bad. And we don't know, is it due to difference in case mix? Is it due to difference in patient uh, preferences? Is it due to uh, severity variations? So the problem is, it doesn't tell you anything, and it, it starts to ask questions, but then where do you go with those questions? So there's no clarity about what it shows. And so the question is, why on earth do we keep doing it? Well, um, and even if you knew what variation was legitimate, what could you do about it? So what we said was, what happens now? What, and, and typically, these atlases of variation focus on where people live. What we showed you was geographic variation. What Jeff Richardson published was geographic variation. What Bob Evans talked about was geographic variation. And that's the conventional analysis. That's what the Atlas of Healthcare Variation publishes, geographic variation. And one of the beauties of that is you can admire the problem. Ours is pretty with orange. There are others which do it beautifully with maps and you have different colours for the different rates, and it's beautiful. And that's good. I'm not, in I'm, I'm not against beautiful things. Um, it has the issue of what is good, but most importantly, there's no accountability mechanism whatsoever. And so who is accountable if we discover that Q has a high rate of admissions for tonsillectomy? What is the mechanism for doing anything about having identified that as an issue and turning it into something to do? And in, in Victoria, we have hospitals, public hospitals, are not responsible for a particular area. In New South Wales and Queensland, traditionally hospitals have been the, the organisational mechanism that is responsible for public hospitals have had a geographic responsibility. In Queensland, they're called uh, local health and hospital districts. Uh, and they used to be called area health authorities in New South Wales. The very title of these things gave them a geographic orientation and there were boundaries for these organisations. Importantly, 
There's been no accountability, even in New South Wales and Queensland, which have had area health authorities for a long time. Why is that? Because they don't have responsibility, for example, for private hospitals, and some of that admission rate is people being admitted to private hospitals. They have responsibility for part of the issue. No one has responsibility for the whole issue. So we said it's crazy to keep on analysing at the area level and as the great saying goes, insanity means doing the same thing over and over again and expecting different results, attributed there to Albert Einstein. In the interest of full disclosure, I'll point out there's no evidence that Albert Einstein ever said that, uh, but it's a lovely quote and the evidence that he didn't ever say it is, is here. So, um, so it is a fantastic quote, but of course, uh, uh, not everything you see on the internet is true. But, so our approach was to go on its side, to say let's look at the hospitals where this happened. Is it po and once you look, start looking at the hospitals, you can hold someone to account. And so what we started to do was not only, it was to move our analysis away from the geographic area, where variation suggests there might be inappropriate care, to begin to look at those conditions where you might have more certainty that variation is an issue. And so you might say, well, can we identify treatments for which on average this treatment should not be routinely provided? Or on average, there's high level evidence that on average this treatment should not be provided or definitive advice. So being a bit more certain each time you went up that, uh, that spectrum. And so we began, to, we identified five conditions for which there was basically no evidence that they contributed positively to a patient outcome. This is not to say there's no evidence that they didn't contribute positively to something else. They might have contributed positively to the income of an orthopaedic surgeon or the income of someone else, but there's no evidence that they contributed positively to patient outcome. So there are a number of these done across the country. And we also looked not only at things that we call do not do do's, but do not do's routinely, where the advice was you shouldn't do these things on a routine basis. And we found that there are a number of hospitals uh, in, in all states which do it to at least admit at least one of these people. Uh, sometimes they have two types of those five, sometimes three, and sometimes uh, four, all four or five of them. But what we have here is instead of these dots representing areas, which they did in our first slide, these dots now represent hospitals. And if we look at the arthroscopy example, this is uh, arthroscopy of the knee for osteoarthritis. The evidence is pretty clear. There's no evidence that this works. And what we see here, this black bar, is the average rate. So each dot here is a hospital which both admits patients for osteoarthritis of the knee and also does arthroscopies. And this is the rate the, the, across the country. They're about 2% uh, of all admissions for arthroscopy had, had uh, uh, sorry, 2% of all admissions for osteoarthritis of the knee had an arthroscopy. So, uh, but you see there's one hospital up here where 70% of all their patients admitted for osteoarthritis had an arthroscopy. So huge variation. Bearing in mind the right rate here is zero. We've got rid of the problem of knowing whether a high rate is good or a low rate is good. The right rate is zero. So what we said is we should start to have a, a, a process where we start looking at these high rates. So the issue that we're concerned about is now looking at 
variation and identifying where something goes wrong or where, where there are high rates and start to focus on this. And what do you do in the first instance? Well, you tell the hospital, your practice is aberrant. You're doing something differently from your colleagues. And so in the first instance, you give them a chance to start to look at why they, they may not know that their practice is different. From, these are public hospitals, by the way, so we're not, we're not looking at uh, financial influences here. The, the, so the, they may not know that their practice is so aberrant. Then you say, well, providing information is often not enough. So the second stage should be, do they still have a high rate a year or so later when there's a chance to actually have thought about their practices? And so you give them the information back again, and then you start to say, well, what do we do if they still have a high rate? Well, our recommendation in this report was that you send a team of their peers in to say, why is it in this particular case, this particular patient, did you decide to do an arthroscopy? Because it may be that there might have been reasons that we know nothing about why that decision was justified. But it's all about holding individual clinicians to account for the decisions they made and also holding the hospital to account for the decisions that were made within their hospital. So the big difference between what our approach is and what the Atlas of Variation and all these other geographic variations approach is, there is now an institution that you can hold to account. And of course the same applies to those other five uh, conditions for which there is little or no evidence. Um, so these are the so-called do not do's. These ones are the do not do routinely's. And so these ones are now, the evidence is not so clear. The evidence is not that you shouldn't do this, but the evidence is this should not be done routinely. And so obviously, as soon as you move from a do not do to a do not do routinely, you move to a situation where there's much greater variation. And so the average now is much greater than the average of those do not do's. And what we said this time was, in this case we said everybody above the average should be looked at. This time we said maybe only the people in the top 10% of the distribution should be looked at. But still there is a mechanism to hold to account the organisation within which these things happen. So the big message of this part of the presentation is this. What we've done here is transformed the data from being ornamental, something to look at, into something that is actionable. And this is the whole issue about uh, quality and safety. How do you create actionable data? Thank you very much. So we've been working the last few months on the uh, upcoming reports and uh, after considerable delays getting the data, which probably is a topic of some relevance to what we're going to talk about, we're advancing on now. And what we've found is variation. But this is a different kind of variation. This is not in rates of procedures. This is in um, hospital-associated complications. And this graph here shows cardiology patients. So that's patients admitted um, under a cardiology service with a whole range of cardiac conditions, heart failure, angina, so on and so forth. And the difference in the number of hospital-acquired diagnoses they then that they then developed during their admission. So we're looking at cellulitis from their cannulas, we're looking at urinary tract infections, we're looking at pneumonia. 
And the difference was startling. You know, a 25% higher chance at a complication at Australia's worst hospitals compared with their best. And we're expecting when we analyse more of the data that it's going to look like this all the time. Again, this is a model where hospitals can be accountable for what they do. Um, and routine data is important. We're certainly not doing enough to reduce complications. This is a graph um, from 2012 to 2015 of hospital-acquired diagnoses, and, and it's, it, it, they're cumulative. So we're looking at about um, patients get, about 20% of patients get these problems, and patients get usually about 1.5 of them. But it's not going away. It's not changing, it's not budging, and it hasn't budged for a long time. So why aren't we doing better? Well, there's a lot of myth and tradition in safety and quality that has become codified and rigid and is just getting in the way of thinking logically about change. The question of preventability was a massive one. Incredibly distracting concept. Could this thing have been prevented? And every study looking at preventability where they put experts in a room, the experts can't agree. You know, to get accuracy, you have to get like a heap of experts, like 15 of them, you know, pointless, expensive exercises. The second thing that happens is that the criteria for preventability change all the time. We can prevent things that we once just thought happened um, and never better demonstrated than with Peter Prodenbach's central line work, where a rate of infection that was considered to be something that just happened was demonstrated to be possible to reduce it to zero. So preventability is a moving space. The other problem with preventability is it introduces the potential for blame. And once you have that, people get defensive. Oh, no, it wasn't preventable. You know, my patients are sicker, my patients are fatter, my patients are older, my patients are different. Um, so it's a problem. And for those sick, fat, old patients, it's actually hard. Someone comes into hospital with renal failure, a whole series of other comorbidities, and maybe their fluid balance wasn't managed so well by a junior doctor who wasn't so well supervised, but, well, maybe, but they're pretty sick. And the effort to disentangle the causation is unproductive and has been unproductive. So the focus needs to change to the overall risk of patients getting complications and move away from what was really a blind alley in error theory that health went into. The second thing, the problem we had is the normalisation of harm. The lack of comparative data means that people just accept a rate of harm. They have no sense of what their own rate is, for a start. Um, people can't remember something that happened more than sorry, less than one in 100 patients, and it's probably even less than that. If you don't remember 50 patients ago, you probably think you don't have the complication. Um, but for patients, we're looking at trying to achieve much lower rates of complications than that. And then comparative data is just simply not available. So hospital boards and management don't know how they're going compared with others. Clinicians don't know how they're going, and they don't know if they're improving. They don't know if anything's changing or anything's changed over time. So the modern thinking in safety um, is really being driven by um, Eric Holnagel, um, along with some of the other thinkers like Sidney Decker. Um, and it's this concept that he's come up with, and he's titled it Safety 2, but it's called other things. 
and it's very popular in industry now and organisations like the mining industry, Qantas, are starting to turn their safety programs. And the idea is that rather than focusing on individual harm, the emphasis is on reducing risk by improving system performance overall. So what you study then is different. You study normal performance and frequent events, and you monitor all outcomes. Because we know when a patient's harmed, it's because everybody was too busy, the communication systems didn't work well. Um, there was a whole constellation of chaos in the healthcare system that staff normally manage to guarantee safety through and, and despite, but it sometimes gets too much. But studying what happened on that exact day, not nearly as useful as studying what happens every day. What are the impediments to work every time? Um, and so safety too, thinking, has implications for what we do with data and how we think about data. So here's some of our recent um, analysis talking about the frequency of um, problems in the hospital. And what we have here is um, the classification of hospital-associated diagnosis, that's CHADX. And for multi-day medical admissions, 20% of patients acquire one of these things they didn't come in with. The Commission on Safety and Quality has a much narrower list, hospital-associated complications, where they focused on preventability and crunched the list down, um, and only 3.1% of patients get those. The nationally reported list, the Sentinel Events, is a sad little collection of things, um, which 0.01% of patients get. When you look at this list, and when you consider what I just said about safety too, it takes you to realising that the sources we need are big sources. Because if we're studying big harms, common events, we're going to be much more effective in improving systems and reducing the rare, extraordinary events. So it changes the way you think about, think about your data sources. And we have all kinds of safety and quality data. It is, you know, once upon a time was all about incident reports. We've got patient port experience measures, we've got registry data, we've got death audit data, patient outcome data, and accreditation. I'm going to talk a little bit about all of these. But, and I had a lot of fun finding this photo today too, a lot of catfish photos. If the data doesn't help us improve, we're just goggling. And there still is a lot of goggling with all these data sources. Um, and patients are particularly poorly served we don't have as much shared decision-making as we should, and in part because clinicians are actually not very good at it because they don't know the risks. They're not in the position of the data they need to engage in it. And there are just a few comparative materials around for patients to make choices about where they go, who they see. Um, so it's a sort of not a good state at the moment. But I believe, I believe we can do better. And there, is, there are potentials for all these data sources to become better, and by that I mean more actionable. And this is about a conversation that moves away from one is better than the other, and that they all have strengths. You'd be happy in any superpower to drop in when you're in trouble, um, you know? And I think a lot of the debate uh, between the, the fans of one and the other has been extremely unhelpful as well. So, so what's actionability about? It's about four things. It's about soundness, 
It's whether people can trust data. It's about relevance. And relevance is the one that is often really ignored. Can you do anything with the data? Can it help someone make decisions? Is it relevant to anybody? The next one's accessibility. Is the data in the hands of the people that can use it? And then finally, understanding. Can the data's insights be readily accessed by the relevant stakeholders? And we've got a lot about all of this in the upcoming report. So this is just a little cook's tour of some of the ideas. And actionability is about helping patients. And there was an alarmingly large number of photos on the internet of superheroes terrorising children in children's hospitals. Um, but I actually thought it was nice to keep remembering that because data can seem like a dry old topic, but it is about improving the outcome for that child in that bed. And every one of those data sources um, should be sharpened and toned and enhanced so it can do it better. Now, every one of them has a strengths and weaknesses. But failure to attend to measurement weaknesses makes our data flawed, but it also makes our health system desperately inefficient. It's wasteful. These things are expensive. Data collection is extremely expensive. And for us to be just doing the same old thing that never does any good for anybody, it's just throwing away money. Um, and there is an opportunity to do better. So this is a Cook's tour. Incident investigation reports. We do a lot of them. New South Wales alone, 140,000 incident reports a year, over 600 RCAs. It's a local management tool. There is no data released in any state anymore on any of this work, not publicly released in any state in Australia. Now, the quality of some of this work might be a bit doubtful. We certainly know counting incident reports isn't helpful, but one would hope for all the man hours that go into a root cause analysis that they would actually be saying something useful Perhaps they're not. There's some American research that's suggesting that maybe we need to be rethinking those processes. But at the moment, this is wasteful data. This is not actionable. It's, you know, it's wasteful. We can do better. Death audit data. We've got surgical, anaesthetic, maternal. Now, the surgical death audit is a really interesting process in Australia. It's quite comprehensive. Um, well, it's fully comprehensive. All deaths nominated by surgeons are assessed by a peer, then they get a second line assessment. And it appears that it's had a significant role in reducing surgical mortality. You know, it's a correlation, it's not a causation, but it seems to have been very impressive. But there are problems. The surgeons will write a report, which they'll share with the other surgeons and publish on the RAC's website. They're not secret saying things like, there were problems because there were only junior doctors in the hospital, or the radiology wasn't on site and we couldn't get a CT scan done. And it sits there on the RAC's website. It's not reaching administrators in a kind of way that might drive action. It's not re reaching other members of the hospital staff. In the case of anaesthetists, the problem's worse. They have this narrow coned down collection where they only look at deaths directly related to anaesthesia or within 24 hours. So they look at a tiny set of deaths. We've been looking at bariatric surgery as one of our, our cases. There were seven patients that, in our data set who died after bariatric surgery. Um, only one of them died within 24 hours. So the other six patients having elective operations would not have had any anaesthetic review. Anaesthetists are experts in a perioperative assessment, perioperative optimisation. I mean, and it's madness. 
every elective patient who dies in hospital should be having an anaesthetic review. Um, so this is an example of kind of ways that our existing data could be ramped up, revved up, go and tell, a lot more, tell us a lot more things. Accreditation data. We debated about whether we included accreditation in the data section, but there's a heck of a lot of it again. A fantastically enormous amount of material is collected on every hospital. It is not publicly available. You, you, you can get the full public accreditation reports for medical schools, for nursing homes. I have no idea why they're not available for public hospitals. They're not going to be ever very user friendly, but that's going to be a matter of, sometimes it's a matter of a secondary analysis by an academic or a journalist that'll point to the things that need attention. That's okay, not everything has to be designed for the consumer, but to have them in a secret world is just bizarre. And you've got it also raised doubts about the soundness of the process. The substantial variation we have in, in patient harms, substantial variation in the appropriateness of procedures, and the recurrence of scandals like most recently Jarawara in Melbourne in fully accredited hospitals, you know, leads doubt about the power of this in any fashion for um, assuring safety and quality or measuring it. Patient reported outcomes. I had to put Wonder Woman there because they're the kind of big emerging thing. Um, they're expensive. They're really exciting because they've got that potential for shifting the um, priorities in care right round to what's important to a patient. And so patients can learn from the experience of other patients. The international research on them is currently really weak. Um, it's all about enthusiasm and we should. Um, and one of the big problems is the issue of um, setting up responsibility for taking action on the results of PROMS. It is completely unclear who would do that. So they're starting to fall in the goggle category very easily. So patient doesn't walk so well after their knee replacement. Sorry, they had the operation. Like, who's going to do something about that? You know, it's actually a problem, and a much bigger problem when you're using, looking at disease-based PROMS, look, looking at the outcome of a patient with um, cancer or rheumatic disease, who's got social problems, who's maybe suffering from depression. You can collect a lot of stuff about how they feel, but when we don't have a mechanism for someone to take responsibility for action, there's a problem with setting collections up. Patient report experience, they're ubiquitous. We collect them in all hospitals. Um, they're not always accessible. In Victoria, to get the state results, you need a department email address. So the public cannot access the results, which is pretty weird. Um, the, um, and the soundness is very limited. Um, only in New South Wales are they standardised. And um, patient reported um, health uh, status, language and age account for 20 to 30% of the variation in experience. So experience, um, measures that are not standardised are useless because you don't actually usually have 20 to 30% variation between hospitals. So that's kind of horrifying when you think of all the thousands of these surveys and the hundreds of thousands, millions of dollars that are going into these around Australia, but they're not actionable. They're not granular enough. Often the results are uh, published at hospital level. Patients 
are treated by teams. Teams are interested in the experience of their patients in the respiratory ward, wherever else it is, and these high-level data, very hard for staff to use, very hard for patients to use to make decisions. Now, clinical quality registries. Batman, powerful kind of things. When they're good, they're very good, but they're not all good. They can collect detailed information, return it to clinicians. You can have process measures, outcome measures. They can follow patients longer term. There are some really good registries in Australia. Um, the soundness, though, is impaired by their voluntary nature. And there is a distinct lack of coverage of many registries, even though they purport to speak for the whole cohort of patients. Not that there is any need necessarily to do that either. Sampling has been a normal part of scientific method for a long time. So there's a sort of strange, desperate effort. We've got to get them all as if that was going to make it better. They don't get them all anyway, and their gaps are often in the area of private hospitals or particular states in Australia, so there are problems with their soundness. Their relevance can be limited by the special interests of the people running them. So surgeons are interested in surgery, um, and not necessarily interested in the other things that happen to patients. So you're predetermining your complications in registries to a high degree, which is going to be less and less relevant as more and more of our patients have multiple health problems. So they're not going to help us make decisions for those patients. And then finally, feedback's not timely. Um, and accessibility is typically limited to the medical stakeholders. In particular, is a failure to release data to government who do most of the funding. Um, and it's a reasonable <laughs> desire to know what's happening. Um, sort of a difficult area. We've done a, a piece in the report looking at a whole lot of registries and rating them on their cohort coverage, their nature of their data, their public reporting, and whether they have a proper feedback mechanism to the providers. And it was a bit of a dog's breakfast with do dots all over the place, um, very messy. So I'm going to use a specific example now and talk about the uh, bariatric surgery registry. So this is data contributed by bariatric surgeons. It's got sponsorship. That's its funders on the right. Always interesting in itself, a bit like a cycling jersey. Um, and patient consent is required. Their coverage of their field is very incomplete. When they looked at um, MBS data, they get 40 to 70% of the relevant procedures. I don't know which 40 or 70%, you know. It's interesting. And they look at types of numbers. They look at defined adverse events. They look at three adverse events, just three. Oh, and death. Um, unplanned return to theatre, unplanned admission to ICU, and unplanned readmission and they got a rate of 2.2%. Now remember that 2.2% because we're going to look at bariatric surgery in a different way in a minute. So that sounds pretty safe, doesn't it? 2.2%. Um, and they measure patient weight loss at one, two, and three years and changing the patient's diabetes management. And those kind of long-term things are things registries can do. They don't seem particularly good at it. They're losing a lot of patients to follow up. So, you know, these things could be good, but often aren't. So I'm going to talk about routine data briefly. Now, Stephen presented work based on routine data. The early slides I did were based on routine data. So that is the material that is coded from every medical record from every hospital patient that was admitted in, in the country and discharged. Um, and there are concerns about the soundness 
um, which relate to the quality of the medical record. It was not written down, it can't be coded. And, and there are coding errors as well. So that's one of the limitations of this, um, this modality. It's largely inaccessible to patients and clinicians. And it contains so much information that lack of analytical expertise limits understanding. And in order to, for people to use it more, it needs to be released in a form where it's classified, where it's cleaned, and where it's actually made available without a vast sum of money and several years waiting. So, what can routine data sources tell us about bariatric surgery patients? And we just ran this analysis today. Remember the 2.2%. Um, because I want to suggest to you that flawed though it is, it actually can tell us a lot more than we realise. Um, and it's right there, we pay for it. It's you know part of our everyday data landscape. Okay, so this is the safety of hospital care for bariatric patients by institution. Um, and you can see the significant and quite marked difference in the risk of complications for those patients between institutions. This is the length of stay for these patients. And when we looked at the ones that were in for longer than a week, um, we found that there was a, an excess of patients having gastric bypass, which is a bigger procedure than some of the others. Um, so they're the ones that ended up stuck in hospital. So this isn't about criticism of surgeons or surgery. This is what can we learn from the data resources we have about what happens. And here are the complications across all bariatric surgery patients. So about 10% got a complication. And the big one was gastrointestinal complications, not surprisingly. It seems perfectly reasonable. Um, but when we looked at the patients who were long stayers, their complications became quite different. And they had much fewer gastrointestinal complications. Many more of them were infections. Many more of them had falls. So you're able to kind of dive down with this data and find out different things. And then if we look again at specific infections, so this is our long stay patients, this is what happened to them. Wound infections, pneumonia, mycoses, gut infections, sepsis, UTI, uh, respiratory infections and implant infections. So suddenly we see the richness of this resource for diving down and actually understanding what happens to our group of patients. We just picked our group, bariatric surgery patients, long stay patients, um, and found out how they were different from ones that didn't stay long. That gives you a lot of clues for actually trying to improve the safety, safety for those patients. So for all the data sources that we looked at, there were three standout things that needed to happen. One is that we needed to improve data linkage processes. Um, and that's a whole topic in its own, but something we're just not doing enough. The second one was to extend reporting to all relevant stakeholders. All of these data sources were locked away, just shared with some people, and there was much opportunity to do that. And then finally, to report outcome data at hospital level, because that is a level at which people can make decisions. GPs can make decisions, patients can make decisions, um, and it needs to include private hospitals. Um, and in a way that they're comparable. PREMS, PROMS, any other measure should be the same for public and private, so people can make real choices. So there's some of the directions and ideas that we're hoping to include in the new report. Thank you.
Thanks very much, Christine. We've got half an hour for questions. Um, we've got two roving mics. So if you down the front here, if you wave your hand so I can see where you are, there's one up there next. So down the front here to start. Um, thanks so much for that. Um, my name's Jason Thompson. I'm just from the uni up the road. Um, I'm really interested in this idea of actionable um, data and, and but the decay in actionable data. And when you were speaking, I was reminded of, um, I think it's, I might get this wrong, but I think it's Goodhart's law. Whereas as soon as a government or an, or an organisation um, attempts to regulate or monitor any set of, of indicators, they immediately, immediately become unreliable indicators of performance. And I'm just wondering how, and I've seen that, I suppose, in, in my own experience in, in um, uh, various institutions, and I'm just wondering how you, you stop indicators from becoming meaningless once people start to... Uh, use them as indicators of performance. Uh, so I'll start. Um, so what was interesting, what I want you to, to reflect back on Christine's presentation and that last bit about bariatric surgery is this was putting that information in the hands of bariatric surgeons so they can learn more about what was going wrong. So they can drill down into uh, what were the key problems so they can identify that wound infection was one of the greatest of those of that uh, of that um, class of uh, things that were going wrong so then you say well the people who are benefiting from the data in terms of their ability to understand it and to use it are the very same people who are recording these things in the record my, my experience over a long period of time has been the more data are used locally, the more useful they are centrally because the more interest the local people who actually do the, put the data in have to get it right. So, um, yeah, so that's the first point. The second point is there are errors in this data already but generally, the errors that we're seeing in the data are, are conservative errors. That is, things are not being recorded. So if you look at comparisons of, say, the routine data and special analysis type data, they always say, oh, the routine data doesn't include stuff, it doesn't include this stuff. So what we're seeing here is an underestimate of everything. And if you think about it, it still shows terrible things happening. And so if that's an underestimate, does it matter if, if, that's a, if that's the error that's happening? So I think you're right that if you, there, there is the risk that the more you set targets and, and so on, uh, they will be gamed, they will be, people will, will try and avoid them or whatever. But the, the, the story we're talking about here is making the available information available to all stakeholders, stakeholders making the information available so it can be used locally. I don't think it's quite answering your point. Can you give us an example? Uh, um, so one simple example of, let's say, um, responsiveness to, to patients, that sort of thing. So uh, uh, let's say there was a 10-day window in which people had to be responded to after a, a procedure or something like that. So people would just be sent letters with nothing in them, but just so they could tick the box to say, yeah, that, that happened. Okay. 
Well, I guess, you know... Mic closer. There'll always be... Not, there certainly will always be gaming when people set unreasonable standards that people can't manage to achieve in their work life, whether it's the Veterans Administration or Canberra Hospital. You know, um, you know the scandals go on around the world. I guess the focus here is actually providing better tools for people. Like, you're never going to have standards around surgical death audit, but you can get the results of the audit um, more clearly um, positioned so it can influence administrators and the people that are responsible for staffing hospitals, that kind of thing. So, like, enhancing the things we're doing already so they're able to... Uh, communicate better, thinking harder about what decisions people might get to make with the data and whether they can make them. And there's a, we've written an appendix in the report on numeracy um, because people's numeracy is, is often not very high and, and that includes clinicians. Um, and there's this assumption that they'll get the, the numbers and they don't. Um, and there's quite a lot of research on, on the range of abilities there. Um, but giving people better tools so that, you know, patients in particular who have a right to know what's likely to happen to them can actually investigate and find out and then make appropriate decisions. So I guess we're focusing... Stephen's more regulatory than me, um, <laughs> but focusing primarily on improvement and that, that idea of the high performers helping the low performers you know, and asking the, so what's happening here type questions um, uh, with better data. There's a question up the back somewhere. Who's got another question over this side? Thank you. Um, Rosie from the Master of Public Policy in Melbourne Uni. Um, a lot of the things you recommend doing with the data seems pretty obvious, you know, make it accessible, um, reduce how inaccurate it is, get it to the people who need to know about it. Um, and I wonder if it's, if that problem that that's not happening is connected to the fact that there are so many different types of data, uh, or that hospitals are overburdened, I mean, wh why are these relatively obvious-looking things not being done? Um, look, people are very precious about their data. They're anxious about sharing it. They're anxious. I mean, remember when things go wrong in health, it it brings state governments down. You know, there is, and there is a concern about what it might show and the scandal that might emerge, and so you end up with, you know, collections that really don't do a lot of good. And also, um, there's always a balance. Um, is, is, does a government want to lift the lid on what's happening in the hospital system? So... 20 years ago, if I've got my numbers right, uh, no, 25 years ago, we didn't publish information, sensible information about hospital waiting times, for example. And it's over the, the last quarter century, we've seen much more information published about performance of state governments and hospital performance in particular. And it, th this is probably the next frontier of that public administration trend. And it, it is partly that we didn't have the tools to do it, um, or we, you know, there's, there's been a development over time of the ability to do all this, and there's probably more expectation that be done. There's a question there. And then you. 
you need to listen. Uh, you need to. So, Simon Judkins, I'm an emergency physician, um, and we. Uh, I just want to get your comment. You started talking about wait lists, but one of you want to make comment about um, the way our public emergency departments uh, measured in their performance based on just times, times to be seen, times to discharge patients, ambulance offload times, and whether we are just measuring that data because it's the easiest thing to measure, timestamps, and how that relates to performance. Um, so I was, um, I can remember when we first started to measure and publish emergency department wait times. And uh, it was in my office here in Melbourne and the one of the senior emergency physicians in Melbourne, a guy called Joe Epstein, came to see me and said, all of the focus in ho public hospital policy is on elective surgery waiting times. It's just as bad in the emergency department and we're getting squeezed out. And uh, so we talked about how could we balance the concern about performance in elective surgery with concern about performance in waiting times and we ended up with that measure which may or may not have been a good one. However, when I think about these things, I always think about the health system trying to balance three objectives simultaneously. Access, measured by elective surgery or emergency department waiting times, quality and cost or efficiency. And so no one of those will ever adequately capture performance. You say you're right. Yeah, also, it's particularly unfair. <laughs> like, massive scrutiny of your throughput, whereas in other parts of the hospital, people loiter around pointlessly and, you know, waiting for things, you know? Uh, so it's, it's, quite, it's quite... Yeah, not fair. Uh, thank you both for your presentations. Uh, my name is Ben Nortney. I'm a PhD candidate working with you and Wallace at Monash Uni. Um, I've got two questions. The first, uh, you both flagged uh, accessing data from the private system as a problem in your respective presentations. So I was just wondering if you could speculate on uh, how best to get access to those data. Um, and secondly, I think one thing of concern when we're talking about actionable data is the lead time from when we discover that there's a problem uh, to being able to action that data. So I was wondering if you could uh, comment on you know, strategies that could possibly decrease the lead time from uh, when you identify a problem to actioning it? So, um, the, the, the private hospital data is, is an interesting, it's got a number of components to it. We actually have the private hospital data in our data set, uh, but it's all one hospital. It's as if all the private hospitals in Victoria were one hospital, whereas for public hospitals we've got individual hospitals. And then we don't know the names of any of them, but they're, they're separately identifiable. So the, the, the data provision to us has been restricted. What we're saying though, is the government, when it's publishing information about hospital performance, in particular about quality performance, should publish it about public and private hospitals in exactly the same way. So there shouldn't be one set of rules for public hospitals and one set of rules for private hospitals. There should be the same set of data, the same metrics published for both public and private. Uh, and the government collects that data and can do that now. Um, and it's a matter of political will. Uh, and so shrouded in all sorts of other arguments like, oh, commercial inconfidence. Well, but commercial inconfidence means there's competition and with competition you want better information. And so commercial 
because it's a commercial entity, you ought, you ought to, that's an argument to publish, not an argument not to publish, but anyway. Um, with respect to the lags, um, this is, I think, partly a technology issue. Uh, the, if you listen to Ewan Wallace, who's the head of the Safer Care Victoria, he'd say, look, just last month we published the uh, surgical audit data for the, the, the most recent annual report, and we published the three previous ones uh, because the lags, they just were hopeless in terms of the lags in publication. So it's partly a matter of will, partly a matter of technology, that you can start publishing data, releasing data on a monthly or a quarterly basis, which is what they should do. When I went to Queensland a number of years ago, they were, they were doing their analyses annually and with about a two-year lag, we changed it to doing it quarterly with a three-month lag. Any, sorry, any other questions? One question over there. Um, Cynthia Wellings from Osmed Education, a private company that does collect data. I'm really interested in the other end of the um, information, which is when you've actually collected the information, then translating that into actionable practice. We recently conducted research over a thousand nurses across Australia attending educational events and um, asked them several questions which were really about intention to change practice as a result of the new knowledge they gained. And there was a remarkable, if not stunning, um, consistency across the country um, in the responses of these nurses when it was open-ended questions. And it really came down to about five roadblocks. And so, and, and they're, they're really interesting, you know, involving things like confidence. Confidence to actually put into practice new knowledge was a real block and it came up over and over again. Um, and as I say, there were about five in all. So I think the idea that once you know, um, it, it, that's one aspect, but actually then translating that into meaningful action and actually then following through is non-trivial. And we could see these, it was almost like road bumps along the way. And um, I don't know if you want to address that, but I think that's a, a, an elephant in the room. Um. I mean, you're quite right, and there's been some very good research from the UK that's found just that, and you know, particularly studies where they've got the nurses all involved in the patients submitting patient-reported outcome and experience measures, and 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 the great great response from the patients, and then the nurses are like, you want us to actually do something, like, you know, like they're all for the project, but it's that next step of making change that what didn't feel, you know, in the gift, you know, for all kinds of ways. Sorry. If I could just say, it's not a one-way street. What the nurses identified was that when they knew something new, they then needed um, enabling. It's almost like a vortex needs to open up to support that new knowledge through. And that the notion of the team is a really unstable notion. And so these nurses are being expected to work in different with different teams consistently, with different people all the while. And so they're having to reframe their new knowledge continually and, and express it in a manner that um, um, uh, gives a meaning and actually um, is effective. So I think that, that the whole health system is becoming much more complex. Certainly the data that we're seeing, um, which is very interesting because when you ask people what they think and then you look at behaviour, there's a, there's a massive um, difference in what's happening there. 
So it's, Look, yeah. it's, a very, it's a really good point you've raised. And for any person, if they're presented with data that they do not have the ability to act on, they just suffer, you know, some amount of emotional dissonance. It's, it's actually effectively unpleasant for them. They'd rather not know if they can't act. And so it's a really good point you've raised. Um, making the data actionable in all kinds of ways is one thing, but providing the kind of supports in terms of organisational structure, in terms of sensible central safety and quality bodies that are not just producing a million pages of rules and guidelines, um, you know, those things, you know, need to happen and we haven't been so good at that. Sorry, I've just got one other comment there. One of the blocks was policies and procedures that they would learn new information and then they would go back into their environment and there was all these um, bolt-ons that were there that made it impossible to actually um, change. That have, that have been rigid for the last decade, exactly. Any other questions? Uh, Luciano Furfaro, I'm an architect. I've been designing hospitals for the past... I've been designing hospitals for the past 25 years and uh, I'm wondering if uh, uh, in these adverse results uh, uh, the environment in which uh, they happen is taken into consideration and if not I would uh, think that it needs to because the adequacy of the facilities is a contributing factor. So the question was about uh, to what extent do we take into account the design of the facilities in looking at the adverse event rates or was that effect? And there is now uh, both a substantial literature about um, effective hospital design uh, and safe hospital design and in fact quite a, an interesting controversy in the literature about whether single rooms uh, are the appropriate policy direction, the argument being most obviously that if you share a toilet you're likely to share <laughs> some uh, infections for example. Uh, so we don't do that because our hospitals are not identifiable and we're not allowed to identify the hospital so we're not able to do that but it's a good point. And, and the kind of thing that might be able to happen in the future. I mean, one of the things we haven't said is that Australia is way behind other countries in terms of public reporting. I mean, the amount of information you could find out about UK hospitals is just astonishing and it's all identified. You know, no drama. There's just screeds and screeds of really interesting stuff about how they're doing compared with their peers and so on and so forth. US public reporting is far more advanced. And it's not often the US is more advanced in healthcare. Um, Australia public reporting is really lagging behind. In the middle there. Would you be able to pass it? Uh, most of the presentation kind of uh, focused uh, around uh, hospital care and uh, what's happening on that. But ne next 10, 20 years, uh, I am seeing a lot of uh, home uh, care is moving in uh, in a much greater uh, extent. And what happens then is that uh, the IoT offerings are going to collect more data uh, with respect to what is happening at homes. And uh, I just want to know how that would relate to what is happening in hospitals and how that kind of improvement happened afterwards moving into your home care. Yes. Um, 
So we've focused on hospitals, partly because they're bigger in terms of the spending in the health system, partly because the data are there. And the data available about primary care is very, very weak. And the measures of quality and safety in primary care are really, really quite complex. Um, that's not to say it's not an important issue to deal with, but we're not equipped at the moment to do so. Um, and it's real, uh, one, of, one of the things we're doing later this week is going to Canberra to argue there ought to be more data about what's happening in primary care um, to actually try and understand what happens in these areas for the, partly for the reasons you're talking about. Any other people who haven't asked a question? One over there. Um, is part of the problem that... Can you hold the mic closer? I'm sorry. Is part of the problem that the damage that has occurred from bad outcomes, well, let's call it that, from a hospital experience, that's not recorded so that you have a patient who has a bad outcome, they've now become dependent upon their family who can't go to work, etc., etc. And we're not quite correctly recording the full cost to society of a bad outcome. And without that, you're not going to get the uh, driving force for reform. Because what you're saying is we need to record a lot more detail and we can see the economic damage caused and the societal damage caused if we record a lot more data and therefore action data. Look, it's a, it's a really good point and, you know, the story of someone with a complication, you know, multiple readmissions, long-term antibiotics, loses their job, becomes depressed, loses their spouse. I mean, these are normal adverse event stories and you're right, the economic cost on them is tremendous. I guess where we're going today is just some practical things that we can actually do better with what we've got already because we're not using what we've got already. We're not, and, but your point is really well made. And when we have a better joined up data system, if we ever do in Australia, between health and social services, um, we, we should be able, which we ought to be able to have, that will help a lot. But it's never going to go into issues like depression uh, and you know, the cost of you know, a depression that follows on from an adverse event. So it's a really well made point. Um, the, the first point up there somewhere, in Christine's presentation was data linkage, and that will help with that, won't address it all. Um, yep. Could Pete, if you've got, we've got about only a couple more minutes. Has anybody got any questions while we're getting the mic down here? Thank you. Hi. Um, I'm interested in whether hospital level data is fine enough and whether individual practitioner level data would be a more interesting thing to look at, especially in a world where it's my perception at least that clinicians uh, don't see themselves as falling under clinical governance of hospitals, they see themselves as individual practitioners. Um, a really interesting and complex question. So I'll give you two alternative answers and you can choose which answer you which. So the first answer is, no, it is not appropriate to do uh, individual clinician um, reporting because essentially what influences 
these sorts of things, including infection, is not only the individual surgeon, for example, but also the nursing team and all the other people, the cleaners and everybody else who surround that patient in that hospital. Secondly, uh, rarely does an individual surgeon, proceduralist, do enough of something to be able to say with confidence that they are hopelessly better or hopelessly worse or whatever. So you can have that answer if you wish. Another answer you might like to say is this. Then in the private sector, an individual surgeon is taking individual responsibility and giving you an individual fee bill for, your, for the service that that person has rendered. And so if they are giving an individual fee, then they are taking individual responsibility and so we ought to publish individual results. So you choose which answer you want. I'll give you a third option. Um, <laughs> In the, in the US now, there have been a couple of really big data linkage studies that have found um, significant provider level differences. There's a big one on looking at obstetricians and gynaecologists where they, where they looked at their practice over about five years and then they related it back to where they'd done their residency program. There's been other ones where they've looked at medical school and associated that with uh, failure to or likelihood of practicing evidence-based care. So even where you're looking at maybe you don't do a hundred of a procedure, there is starting to be some techniques where you've got enough data about all the patients you're seeing where I think we'll eventually be able to have individualized measures and because that's what matters to people, something they feel that they can alter. Um, that they can see that, you know, and I think a lot of clinicians want that. But, and I think there's a, a future for it too. And one of the interesting things about this is there, there is a balance of interest. There's the, um, the individual doctor uh, has rights to privacy and, you know, if there are complaints made about them, should you tell the hospital board about them and so on? versus the rights to future patients and the rights to individual patients. My view is that we've erred too much in our policy settings in terms of protecting the interests of the individual doctor and not enough in terms of protecting the interests of the future patients. But that's a, a, a judgment call about how policy settings are made. There was one other question somewhere that I saw. Why don't down, down here? Oh, there's one up the back and one down the front. So I do the one down the front first. And the one up the back is the last question. Thanks. Um, most people in the audience would probably know that in the United States, for a lot of adverse events that are deemed preventable, they've stopped making payments um, to try and initiate quality improvements. Is there any um, outlook that the data will become sophisticated enough so that um, an organisation that, say, is an outlier for arthroscopies for arthritis you might be able to say, well, you've done X amount for arthritis and, and withdraw their MBS payments to try and act as a deterrent. Yeah, the, the, that, that is possible now. I mean, you could, you could, you could do that now. So, um, but it, the, and in terms of the US experience, Australia is moving in that direction over the next couple of years as well. So somewhere in the middle there, there was a question, which is the last question. Hello, I'm James Brooks-Dowsett from the Australasian Sonographers Association. Um, so as a, as a professional body, we, we do struggle to get access to a lot of this data, so it's very exciting work that 
that you're doing, and I'm very much looking forward to the results. Um, so, I guess in terms of the clinical change that this could potentially drive, uh, where do you see peak bodies as having a role in, I guess, supporting that change or affecting that change? So, if you think about it, a lot of the stuff I presented was about, you know, the evidence about what something works and what not. Um, if you think about the bariatric example that Christine presented, it was the professional body had identified what were the three indicators. One of the critical roles in the if professional bodies should be what are the measures that we should be using to compare the performance of our members, for example. You know, many of these bodies claim they're interested in clinical standards. They should be saying, this is how we're going to measure that, for example. Yeah, I think it's time for them to make a choice and it's a really important time for them to do so. Um, you look at some of the work that's gone in on the choosing wisely movement. Some of them stepped up and did decent things. I know some of the colleges produced this pathetic list of things that they never did anywhere, anyway. Oh, we're not going to do these ones anymore. You know, it was such a failure of engagement with it. And I think it's interesting times for the colleges, whether they um, choose to take control or become a much less relevant organisation um, as they have in the UK. Um, I mean, they lost power there, they lost control, and I think it's that point for Australian professional bodies. Good point to end on. A nice challenge there. So thank you very much, for everybody, for coming out on a cold night, and thank you for the questions as well. Bratton Institute is uniquely positioned to bring an independent, rigorous and practical lens to big issues in public policy with the capacity to talk honestly to both sides of politics. We maintain this unique position through the generosity of the public and our affiliate companies. If you would like to find out more about contributing to our continued independence, head to our website to donate, grattan.edu.au. This has been a Grattan Institute podcast. If you want to hear more, subscribe to our podcasts on iTunes.